Okay. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me okay? Great. Thank you very much for coming on a Saturday morning when you could be doing lots of other things. You could be at the uh, March for a People's Vote in London. You chose to come to a talk called How Democracy Ends <laughs> instead. In interesting choice, I think. Um, so we started a bit late. Uh, I want to leave time at the end for questions, so we'll, we'll do the hour if you can hang around. Um, there's apparently no one in here straight after. I'll talk for maybe 45 minutes. So how democracy ends, that is a question about the future, basically. It's a question about what might come next, what comes after democracy. I think we can be pretty confident now that democracy is not the end of history. So something is going to come after democracy. But it's not at all clear that we know how to think about that, especially those of us, which I'm guessing is pretty much all of us, who have never known any other political system, those of us who lived in this country or countries like this for our lives, no other political system than liberal representative democracy. It's really hard for us to find the imaginative space to think about the possibility that there might be something else. And to think about the question of whether that would necessarily be worse. How do we know it would be worse? It might be better. But the question about the future is also a question about the present, because I'm sure you know Many people are asking, how do we tell if this is it? How would we spot the signs if we were living through that transition, that moment when democracy, the thing that we are so familiar with, was starting to end or to unravel or to fail? Would we recognize the signs? Do we know? Is it now? And that is a question that depends upon what we think about the past. That is basically, I think, a question about history because we have not got that future to compare the present to. We only have the past. And it's questions about the past, I think, that frame how we understand the present. So what I want to do in this talk is just go through, for sort of 20 minutes each, two ways of thinking about that question. How do we frame the present moment so that we can think about the future through the past? I think there are two basic questions here. The first is, does history provide a guide? So democracy has failed many times in the past. It is a story of repeated failure until quite recently. And there are some kind of showcase failures, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. Do they give us a guide to what to look out for, for the warning signs? That's the first question. The second question is, do we know roughly what the shape of the democratic story should be? Do we know how long it ought to last? Do we have any idea of where we are in the story? Because it would make a big difference to know whether we're still near the beginning, somewhere in the middle, or maybe near the end. So I'm going to come on to that in the second half. I just want to give you one way of possibly thinking about that. Because there are ways that you can ask the question of things that don't have a natural lifespan. How long can we expect them to last? So there's something called the Copernican hypothesis which is an idea that comes from Copernicus, uh, the astronomer. And basically it says, we shouldn't assume that just because it's happening to us, or it's where we are, that it's the special place. So just because we live on this planet, and when we look up at the sky, it seems to overarch us, doesn't mean we're at the center of the universe. That was Copernicus's idea. We're not. Probabilistically, it's incredibly unlikely that we would be at the center. Why would we be at the center of the universe? What's so special about us? We're just on a rock. We're not even at the center of the solar system. We're just on a rock floating through space. Now, that also applies in time terms. We shouldn't assume that because it's happening to us, there's something special about it in the arc of a story. You're much, much more likely, if you encounter something that doesn't have a natural lifespan, to meet it somewhere in the middle than to meet it right at the beginning or right at the end. So just because... Donald Trump is president of the United States, just because the Kardashians are the most famous family on the planet, doesn't mean it's the end of times. Like, <laughs> it's, it's very unlikely to be the end of times. So the guy who came up with this Copernican hypothesis as applied to time was a physicist called Richard Gott. And he, he first sort of touted this idea at the end of the 1960s when he was a young man and he took a trip and he went to Britain, and he went to Germany, and he saw Stonehenge, and he saw the Berlin Wall. 
And like, how long do these things last? They don't have a natural span. And he thought, well, Stonehenge has been around for sort of three, 4,000 years, and the Berlin Wall's been around for eight years. So he thought, probabilistically, it's incredibly unlikely that I will outlive Stonehenge. But I've got a really good chance of outliving the Berlin Wall if it's in the middle of its story. So when the Berlin Wall came down, he said, ha. Huh. <laughs> now, there are lots of really interesting applications of this idea, and I'm going to come back to it. But it really matters whether we think the story of democracy is two and a half thousand years old. In which case, if we're somewhere in the middle, it's probably got a lot of life left in it. Or is it maybe 250 years old? Does it start with the American Revolution, the French Revolution? Or, which is closer to my view, is it at most 100 years old? The thing that we call liberal representative democracy, where the vast majority of citizens, women as well as men, minorities as well as majorities, are enfranchised, where you have professional political parties where you actually have welfare provision for citizens. That is a story that is at most 100 years old, and on some accounts it's not even 100 years old. Does American democracy really exist as a democracy before the civil rights movement? Somewhere between 150, 100 years old, and 50 years old. If that's true and we're somewhere in the middle, we're also potentially somewhere near the end. And people who are 20 years old can have the same experience about democracy that Richard Gott had with the Berlin Wall, which is that they may well outlive it. So I'm going to come back to that. I just want to leave you with that thought, especially if you're under 20. <laughs> so to do this in two parts, the first of all, I just want to talk about that kind of can we use history as a guide, because you probably know. So I've written a book called How Democracy Ends. There are lots of books with similar-ish titles, but actually they're making usually very different arguments. There's a book by Madeleine Albright called Fascism, A Warning from History. There's a book by a historian called Timothy Snyder called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, saying that we need to listen to the warning signs, and the warning signs are the possibility that we are going to repeat what happened in the first half of the 20th century. So if you go on the New York Times website, I think it's three or four days ago, they, they put up these little films. There's a film by... Uh, philosopher from New York University, I think, about five minutes long, and it's called something like, if you think this isn't fascism, you're not paying attention. And it's a five-minute film in which he just shows clips of Trump and Mussolini. It's usually Mussolini, not Hitler, in these analogies, but that's not reassuring, right? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's not good news. Uh, and he says explicitly, this is at the level of rhetoric. I'm talking about the rhetoric. I'm talking about what they say, how they say it, how they mobilise, and we are rerunning this story. That is the warnings from history genre, that we are rerunning the story. And that if we think that we are not, we are being fantastically complacent. Now, there is a case for saying, well, but it's just rhetoric. So just to give you one example, like Trump has said many, many things that really you shouldn't say if you're a Democrat. So just to give you one example, in the first presidential debate, I'm not going to do an impression of him except with the finger gesture. So with his little stubby finger, he pointed at Hillary Clinton and he said, if I was president, you would be in jail. Now, that is not a democratic thing to say, right? <laughs> that if I win, I will jail you, my opponent. But of course, he did win and she's not in jail. And in fact, I think he's slightly more likely to end up in jail <laughs> than she is. But, you know, in the warnings from history genre, the warning is don't just think because it's only words, it won't over time turn into action. It starts with the words in, this, in the language of this genre, then the norms, the, the, the sort of ways of behaving that we have become used to, the things that we think you can and can't do start to break down, the institutions start to break down. It begins with words, but it's early days, and it ends with fascism. So I think, and I argue in my book, that that is the wrong way to think about the history of this. So I want to just try and illustrate why it's wrong. I absolutely, and I'll tell you in a second, I absolutely don't dispute that there are these chilling echoes. But I think we're making a mistake if we think that history serves as a guide here. So the way that I would do it is to ask a different question. Not what do we think of the 1930s, what does that look like to us? But what would we look like to someone from the 1930s? So, so flip it around, do the kind of thought experiment, take an adult from Britain or America, uh, 
Germany is a slightly different case, uh, but we have to remember Britain and America in the 1930s, democracy came very close to failing. Uh, it was under enormous strain. Take a citizen from one of those two countries from, say, 1936 or something, and show them our world. What would they think? Would they think, oh, God, you risk, you risk making the same mistakes as us? So I think that that mythical person would have three responses. So the first response, I think, is they absolutely would see the connection in terms of what the politicians are saying and how they're behaving. Someone from 1936 would look at our politics or American politics or European politics and say, we had politicians just like that. We had the anti-Semites, the rabble-rousers, the populists. We had the fake news merchants. You think fake news is new? We were drowning in fake news. We called it propaganda or advertising or whatever. It's all the same. They've always lied. You know, someone from Britain would look at Boris Johnson and say, we had one just like that in 1936. He was called Winston Churchill. So this is, I have to be clear, right, this is not 1940 Winston Churchill. This is not the savior of his nation, Winston Churchill. This is 1936 Winston Churchill, blowhard, failure, rabble rouser. Boris Johnson is never going to turn into 1940. <laughs> Winston Churchill, because we are not about to fight an existential war of national survival against fascism. Americans would say, you know, we had Huey Long, we had Father Cochran, we had these people who used the new technology radio to really kind of seed messages of suspicion of foreigners, conspiracy theories, paranoia about immigration. Absolutely, we recognize the type. That's the first thing I think someone would say. So it's not new. Those parallels are real. The second thing I think someone from the 1930s would say if we showed them our politics is, wow, you didn't change anything. That's weird. So it's been a long time, right? 80 years? The House of Lords? You didn't think? Or an American might say, the Electoral College? Right? It didn't work then, so you didn't think you might want to... So the political parties, so our two main political parties were Republicans, Democrats, Labour, Conservatives. You didn't think you might try something different? And we might say, we did try, but... And then I think that person would say, well, if you're not going to change your institutions, you're not going to, you've got the same electoral system. Actually, I think someone looking across that 80-year gap would be astonished by how durable indeed how unchanging the institutions are. And then I think that person would say, but why are you asking me about politics? That's not, like, what about everything else? Everything else is completely different. Oh my God, you live in a completely different world. Almost immediately that person would say, stop asking me to, like, look around you. You have no, do you know how rich you are? Seriously, you, and we are, so we are 10 times richer than Britain's or Americans' average per capita were in the 1930s, 10 times richer. That person would say, you're so old. <laughs> Where did all the young people go? So in 1930s America, 5% of the population was 65 or over. It's now 20% and rising. There were very, very few people who would count as pensioners even if they had pensions in the 1930s. The median age in America in 1930 was around 25. So half the population were 25 or younger. In Britain and America now, it's touching 40. In parts of Southern Europe, it's 45. In Japan, it's touching 50. This is an enormous transformation. Those were societies of young people. We are societies of middle-aged and old people. It's a complete demographic revolution. That person from the 1930s would say, and, you know, as something that I can infer from this, you're so healthy. Wow. I mean, the reason you people live so long is that you, you don't even look old. I mean, the old people don't even look old. If you were 60 in 1930, just look at the photos. 60-year-olds in 1930 looked old. They would say, you're so educated. Where, how did that happen? So 1930 Britain, 1% of the population roughly went to university. 1%? Now, among the under-40s, it's touching 50%. It's about 45%. So with that demographic, the lower half, we're getting close to half of everyone going to university. Complete transformation. That person would say, 
you're so connected. You're so networked, so that the, ex the human experience in the 1930s was primarily one of social isolation. Human beings were trapped, even in the 1930s. Yes, there was radio, there were newspapers, but basically your life was contained by the geographical space around you. To live in Cambridge was to live in Cambridge. You were trapped in your world. You had very, very few means of communicating with anyone who wasn't in the same room as you. And they would look at us and say, you just... You have no idea. What are you doing comparing yourselves to us? You're nothing like us. You're like a different species from us. So you've got sort of rhetorical similarity, institutional durability, social transformation. That's the story from the 1930s to now. So then I think the mistake that the warnings from history genre makes is it says the rhetoric people sounding a bit like fascists, is over time going to undermine the institutions. And then when the institutions start to break down, whether it's civil disorder or a coup or some kind of failure, suspension of the rule of law, then the social progress will start to unwind. That's the kind of nightmare scenario. And in the language that political scientists use, we will start to backslide. That's what they call democratic failure, backsliding we will slip back into the past. So I think that that is really, really implausible. So I want to offer you a different way that you can think about that relationship, which is actually the incredible institutional durability is one of the things that allows for the rhetoric. So my feeling is that one of the reasons people voted for Donald Trump is not because, like him, they have complete contempt for democracy, but actually because they think that democratic institutions are so durable they can survive people who have contempt for democracy. <laughs> that you can vote for Trump, and in the end, actually, you'll get away with it. Because it's impossible to imagine these institutions failing. Because they have been around for so long. Now, that was not true in the 1930s. In 1930s Germany, the institutions were barely rooted at all. Now, they have such deep roots, we can almost not imagine anything else. I think that the, the institutional durability is the thing that potentially allows for the extreme rhetoric. And it's not the extreme rhetoric that the institutions are struggling to cope with. I think they're struggling up to a point, but they are also coping. I think what the institutions are struggling to cope with is the social transformation. That's the change. And that is not bad news, because on the whole, the social transformation is good news, right? It's better to be richer than to be poorer. It's better to be educated than less well-educated. It's better to live longer. It's better to be healthier. It's not all good. The, the networked world is not all good. Social media has plus sides and downsides. But it's the, the pace and the speed of that transformation that these institutions are struggling with. Now, that means that democratic failure is not going to look like anything that we knew in the 20th century, because this is new. So I want to, in the second half of this talk, tell you a bit about how I think you can tell the shape of the story of democracy to indicate what that failure might look like. But I want to say one other thing, because I'm aware that there's a, you know, there's a riposte to the, the version that I've just given you, which is to say it misses something out. And basically, the thing it misses out is the thing that came before the 1930s, which was the end of the 1920s. That is, the 1930s is not just this decade that free floats and produced fascism. Fascism comes after the Great Depression. So I haven't talked about economics talked about people getting richer, but I haven't talked about economic failure. And we are in a similar position in the sense that we have lived through 10 years ago something that some people think is pretty close to the Great Depression, sometimes called the Great Recession, but the Great Crisis of 2008 and its knock-on effects. And those knock-on effects have had a profound impact on our politics. You can't explain Trump and Brexit and so on unless you think through the world that we've lived in since 2008, the loss of confidence in many institutions, the suspicion of experts and so on. Something similar in the 1930s. Economic crisis produces political doubt, suspicion and crisis. So might we not be rerunning that story? So let me just give you one other example, which I think brings out the parallels but also brings out the differences. So contemporary Greece, to take one example. Contemporary Greece is a country that in the last 10 years has been through an economic depression which is longer and deeper than the Great Depression. So it's been worse in Greece. So uh, the economy in Greece has essentially shrunk by a quarter. 
Uh, unemployment in Greece has peaked at, I mean, it's still pretty close to this point, 25% for all adults and 50% for young people. So 50% youth unemployment in the 1930s, it's not complicated just to draw a line from there to fascism. And Greece has a fascist party, and that fascist party is in the Greek parliament. Greece is a country that, within living memory of many Greeks, has had a coup. So in 1967, you know, a good, a bad, old-fashioned coup, where the colonels, as they call themselves, the colonels, take over the uh, radio stations, take over the TV stations, suspend the rule of law, institute military courts, play martial music. But Greece and Greek democracy has not failed. Not yet, and I don't think it will. I think these institutions have survived. They have shown themselves to be remarkably durable. How? Well, why does 50% youth unemployment in Greece not lead to fascism? Because there aren't any young people. So Greece is the third or fourth oldest society in the world. Uh, Southern Europe is, is the, the place that's closest now to Japan. There were stories in the papers this week about how Spain is going to overtake Japan as the country with the longest life expectancy. The median age in Greece is 46, 47. Greece is a pensioner society. There have never been societies like that. We don't know what happens in pensioner societies when you have an economic crisis on that scale. But if Greece is anything to go by, they don't fail in the same way that Weimar Germany failed, which was a society of young people, particularly young men, many of whom had guns, and all of whom were suffering post-traumatic stress disorder because you weren't that far out from the greatest war in human history. It's nothing like that. So if it's going to fail, it's going to fail in a different way. If I had to pick one model, a historical model, that is at least close to where we are now, it's not Weimar Germany, it's not fascist Italy, it's not even actually contemporary Hungary, I think contemporary Hungary on many of these measures is very different from where Britain and America are now. The closest historical model is contemporary Japan, which is not a country we tend to think about anymore. We used to think Japan was the future, and then in about 1989, Japan failed. So Japan had its great economic crisis at the end of the 80s, uh, where its uh, stock market and real estate bubble burst. And Japan's never really recovered in the sense the decades since tend to be known in Japan as the lost decades. Nothing's gone terribly wrong, but economic growth has stagnated. The country has got older and older. Its politics is stuck. It has lots of scandals. It rotates. It's relatively stable now, but it rotates through politicians. People are angry and frustrated. It's a very non-violent society. It's a society that's deeply resistant to immigration, which is one of the patterns of these elderly societies. Greece, Italy, Britain possibly, America possibly. As these societies get older, they get trapped because it seems like older democracies have a problem with immigration, and yet older democracies need new young people. Right? If you're not going to have kids, where are you going to find the young people to do the work? Well, you have to let people come into your country. So if you're not going to have kids and you're not going to let young people come into your country, which is the Japanese story now, right, on the sort of demographic measures, it's a... It's a country, it's a people who are dying out. If you're not going to let immigration be the answer, there is only one other answer, which is robots. So that is the Japanese bet on the future. So who's going to care for all these old people if you won't produce young people and you won't let foreigners come in? Japanese people hope that they're going to design nice, friendly robots to do it. Now, that is not Weimar Germany, right? I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's going to happen. <laughs> but it's not Weimar Germany. Right. Next 20 minutes, and then I'll stop. So this is a separate version of the same story. I want to tell it in a different way, which is to go back to that question about what is actually the shape of this? How long can we guess that we've got? Where are we in the story relative to other points in the story? So my feeling is the 1930s actually was really early in the story of democracy. If the story of democracy at most starts in 1918, what we think of as democracy. But let me tell you just a very, very short kind of potted history of democracy that takes in the whole two and a half thousand years. 
which I think captures what's different about now. So this is going to be very condensed, and I'll do it quickly, but I think it gives you the shape of it. So if you go right back to ancient Athens, where something that we call democracy started, its critics, and one of the ironies of the ancient world, is that the people who didn't like it are the only people whose views we still have, because they were the educated elite, and the educated elite didn't like it, so Plato didn't like it. We assume most Athenians did quite like it, but they didn't leave anything behind. Many of them couldn't write. So we've got this kind of skewed view of democracy, but the skewed view we have has in it a basic argument that says it can never work. And it can never work because there are just some facts of kind of nature which democracy cannot buck. And the facts of nature are, if democracy is the system where if there are more of you, you win, that's how it works. It's majority rule. That's the most basic feature of democratic politics. It has other features too in the ancient world. It had random selection by lot and so on. But basically, in any democratic system with anyone that we've known at, if there are more of you, you can rule. And people like Plato said, in any human society of any shape, anywhere, there are always going to be more of three categories of people. So there will always be more poor people than rich people. It's just a law of nature. The poor outnumber the rich. There will always be more less educated people than educated people. The word education is probably too modern a one, but as it were, there will be more ignorant than wise people, because wisdom is an elite thing. And there will always be more young people than old people. It's a law of nature, right? You can't have a human society in which, because, as it were, people progressively die off, you can't have a human society in which there are more people in their 60s than in their 20s. So Plato essentially said, if you want democracy, you are choosing to be ruled by the poor, the ignorant, and the young. And he said, that's not a good idea. Um, and the one that, so people often focus on the poor bit or the ignorant bit. The one that in Plato's Republic he really emphasizes is the young. So he says, democracy is young man's politics. So it was men then. And he says, we know what young men are like. Uh, fickle, volatile, drunk liable to run into debt, easily led. Who would choose that as a model of politics? So Plato said it can, it can never work because a system where the poor, the ignorant, and the young get to make the decisions will quite quickly fall apart. And that argument pretty much held the field for about 2,000 years. Athenian democracy did eventually fail, and no one really tried again, not really, until the end of the 18th century, when a group of thinkers came up with an answer to Plato. And the name for the answer to Plato was elections. Let's introduce into democratic politics these things called elections. So we won't let the people decide. We will let the people decide on the people who actually make the real decisions. And the argument was, it was a kind of punt, but it turned out to be a genius gamble, that if you hold elections what you will discover is those three groups of people don't win. That is, they don't get elected. Because if you look at elections anywhere in the world, take any, almost any representative assembly that you want, it turns out that it's really hard to win an election if you're poor, because it costs money. So it's biased towards the rich. And I'm talking about here the people who wind up in the parliament. I'm not talking about the different programmes. You can have a a platform that supports the poor, but to be a poor person in Parliament is really hard. It's really hard to win an election if you don't have an education. Even for the people who say they stand up for the people who don't have an education. So Donald Trump said, I love the uneducated, or whatever it was he said. But Trump has got a degree from Wharton Business School. All of the populists, it turns out, have degrees. Modi, who's probably the closest thing to a genuine person of the people in that sense, made sure he got a degree by correspondence course. Marine Le Pen has got a degree. Orban has got a degree. They all have degrees. It's really, really hard to get elected because the voters seem to want, in some sense, experience. And for that reason, it's also really hard to get elected if you're young. So parliaments are not full of people in their 20s, even in societies where all the voters are in their 20s. Parliaments are full of people in their 50s. So this thing called elections, representative democracy, if you stick it into Plato's model, it completely turns it on its head. And it turns out 
that you can have elections and you don't need to worry that you will actually be ruled by the poor, the ignorant, and the young. And I'm, not, you know, I'm trying to be kind of neutral about this. I think there are lots of reasons for thinking you might want to be ruled by those people. But if you're Plato, you really think it's a bad idea. And then the people who came up with this at the end of the 18th century shared all of Plato's prejudices. So you, you can do democracy. And then it turned out that actually once they realized how it worked, you could expand the democratic franchise. So what you then have is once the principle of election has become clear, that by having elections you do not let these people into parliament, you can let more and more of them vote. So you can lower the voting age. You can broaden the franchise. You can enfranchise women, which only happened in the 20th century. I don't think you could call anything a democracy where women are not enfranchised. So this story only starts in 1918 at best. In France, it only starts after the Second World War. You can enfranchise women because if the fear of these elite men was that women were, this was the primary fear back then, uneducated, you can be sure that you will still get the same kinds of people in Parliament. And you did. So, for instance, you enfranchise women. You did not get women in Parliament. You had the same late middle-aged educated men. And it's amazingly consistent. So the average age of members of Parliament today is 50. 50 years ago, it was 50. 100 years ago, it was 50. The average age of the US Senate is roughly 60. 150 years ago, it was roughly 60. Now, 150 years ago, it was 60 in a society where the electorate's median age was about 24. But something changed in the last 20 or 30 years. So, so we are now living through the phase where, for the first time in modern democratic history, that gap has started to close. So there was always this fundamental gap between the electorate and their representatives. And that gap has started to close. But it has not started to close because, I'm, I'm putting it like this, even though it's not quite right, it hasn't started to close because they have become more like us. They haven't become younger, right? Parliament does not have. There's that SNP MP that everyone loves. You know, that does not have people in their 20s in it. They have not become poorer. Our representatives are not poorer than they used to be. Just look at the US Senate. They have not become less educated. They've become more educated. So in the current House of Commons, 92% of MPs have a university degree. So that's really high by historic standards. It used to be possible to become an MP without a degree. You could be a trade unionist. You could come in through the army. Actually, it's almost become an entry requirement now. So they haven't become younger, poorer, or less educated. But we have become older, richer, and better educated. Not all of us, but maybe half of us. So if now the median age in some countries is 46, 47, 48, and that sort of golden number for the people who wind up in Parliament is still about 50, we're getting close to the point where they cross over. And now suddenly a Parliament of 50-year-olds is potentially younger than its population. In societies where 50% of people below a certain age group are going to university, you have representation where if all of the MPs are going to university, they are like half of the population. So back when 1% of people went to university and maybe 50-60% of MPs went to university, most of them were nothing like their population. The, the rich and poor thing is more complicated. I want to leave that to one side. But in terms of age, in terms of education, the gap has closed, or at least it's closed for about half of us. And this is entirely new. So there have never been democratic societies like ours. And in that two-and-a-half-thousand-year story, I think you can see, at the beginning of the 20th century, the creation of the thing that we've come to think of as democracy, which is basically built on the idea that if you have elections, it produces this safeguard so that you can genuinely democratise your political systems. You can open them up, because it will not actually change the kind of people who get elected. And then those people will compete on platforms, not because they are like their voters, but because they're offering different things to their voters. You've got elite representatives, some of whom are representing the well-off, some of whom are representing the less well-off, representing different kind of groups and segments of society. But we've never had societies where the society has suddenly become as old as the representatives. 
or part of the society has become as well educated as the representative. And I think potentially two things follow from this. In that two and a half thousand year story, that kind of goes in three phases, the Plato argument against direct democracy, which kind of won, even if it's not the best argument, then the 250-year story where we have representative democracy and progressively we democratise because the people who take the decisions, the elites who are worried about enfranchising the masses, have the reassurance of elections. And then that recent story, which is the gap has started to close again, maybe we can revisit Plato's original critique and say, actually, the case for elections is not as strong as it used to be. If, if we have elections because we are worried, for whatever reason, that we can't entrust political decisions to human societies where the ignorant, the poor and the young always outvote the educated, the wealthy and the old, what if that's not true anymore? And if that's not true anymore, there may well be a much, much better argument today for direct democracy. And we're seeing it, right? Part of the frustration with politics isn't just coming from the left behinds, as they're sometimes called, the people who feel that politics has left them out. A lot of it is also coming from the people who are marching in London today, who are not the left behinds, trust me. <laughs> and they are demanding their say. I think it's perfectly legitimate for many Remainers to say, what's so special about Parliament? They're just like us. And we know there's this puzzle with Brexit, which is Parliament is just like the Remainers. Why? Because Parliament is just as educated as they are, because they all have degrees. I'll come on to that in a second. But there's this sort of new dynamic at work here. We potentially are at the cusp of a moment where a two and a half thousand year old argument no longer holds. And representative democracy is struggling to legitimate itself, not just for the left behinds, but also for the old, educated, quite comfortably off people who want a say. Maybe representative democracy has reached the end of the road in those terms. That's the first thing. The second thing is the big change that we have seen, say compared to the 1930s or the 1890s or even the 1970s, is that in representative democratic societies where the basic political institution is the election. The fault line used to be between the representatives and the electorate. And if democracy was going to go wrong, that was where it was going to go wrong. That was where the gap was. And skillful rabble-rousers and populists could exploit that gap and encourage people to lose faith in representatives who are nothing like them. And there was a sense that there was kind of representat representation and there was society and there was a big gap between them. And if those representatives were not delivering for society, society as a whole, in some sense, might reject this way of doing politics. That was the fear. And it happened. So it happened in the places where democracy failed. That was the fault line. It broke because representation no longer commanded legitimacy or assent. We now live in societies where the fault line is not actually, I think, between the electorate and their representatives. The fault line is within the electorate. So the big division is not us and them, it's us and us. And so we saw this with Brexit, we saw it with the election of Trump, where the two biggest political divisions were education and age. That's what divides us not from our representatives because they are old and educated. So they are like some of us. They're not like the others of us. So if there's a division, there's a division between, if you do it in Brexit terms, Parliament, Remainers, because we know Parliament is pro-Remain. And it's pro-Remain because if you go to university, the statistics show there is a 70% likelihood that you favour Remain. So if Parliament is 92% university educated, Parliament will favour Remain, and it does. And then Parliament doesn't know what to do because Parliament has become aware that it does not represent half of the population because the division is within the population, or old versus young. So in the 2017 British general election, the big dividing line is not left-right. It's actually not even university, non-university. It's whether you're older or younger than 45. It's a huge wave of support for Corbyn, not just among the 18 to 24-year-olds, 
but among people under 40 or 45. And then over 45s is kind of a different world. And that's where the division is. Now, if the, the division in our society is between educated and less, well, less educated, there's a question about well-educated, educated, less educated, or old or young, that is not Weimar Germany. That is not how democracy has failed in the past. Not least because those competing groups do not have an institutional form that we are familiar with. I mean, there isn't a party quite of the old and the young. I mean, maybe Labour is now the party of the young, maybe the Conservatives are the party of the old. There isn't really a party of the educated versus non-university educated. Possibly Labour is the educated, possibly the Conservatives. But it does not map on neatly at all. This is not an armed conflict, right? I cannot see the circumstances in which there is going to be a civil war between old people and young people. <laughs> or between people who have a university degree and people who don't. I mean, at best, there is going to be social division and a kind of toxic politics around this. But it's, if democratic societies used to genuinely snap when people lost faith in political representation, I don't think we're going to snap in half on these new social divisions. But our institutions are really, really struggling to cope with them. They actually don't fit. So when I said at the beginning, it's the social transformation that's the hardest thing for our institutions to cope with, not the rhetoric. The rhetoric is a function of some of these social divisions. Of course it is. That's why Trump deliberately tries to appeal to people who didn't go to colleges by saying colleges are these kind of conspiracies of liberals. But the real challenge is actually the social change, not the rhetoric. And I'm not sure that these institutions can adapt. It's an open question. So to conclude, I think if you look at those two possibilities, on the one hand, the case for direct democracy is stronger than it's ever been. On the other hand, social divisions within the electorate are now where the real pressure points are. I think we can see a future that simultaneously might become more democratic and less democratic. I mean, my feeling about all of the questions that people ask about social media or technology or this or that. Is it good for democracy? Is it bad for democracy? It's almost always both. It's almost always that the same forces are both good and bad. The same thing that actually I think is going to empower people to demand much more of a direct say in control of their lives is also the thing that is dividing citizens from each other. I think that this technology is both enhancing our ability to express ourselves, to communicate, to participate, and it's also enhancing the division between people who have knowledge, particularly technical knowledge, expert knowledge, and people who don't. I can imagine a future for our democracy where some of it progressively becomes much, much less democratic, where certain decisions actually just get taken on by certain kinds of educated elites. I don't think we will ever have democratic control of the internet. I don't think we will ha ever have democratic control of the international financial system. It's too complicated. It's too remote. It's too technical. At the same time, even if we don't have democratic control of the internet, we could, on the internet, do amazingly more democratic things than we do at the moment. We could have much more participation. We could use new technologies to ask people what they think because we can stop being scared of the fact that they are poor and young and ignorant. Maybe we should never have been scared of that fact. And we should remember that we now live in societies, the first societies in human history, where the old can outvote the young. We are the first societies where if everyone votes, the old win. So it used to be said, well, the reason the young people keep getting screwed by our politics is they're too lazy to get out of bed and vote. And old people, even really old people, make it to the polling station because they believe in the value of a vote and feckless young people are too busy, whatever. I think that's really unfair because if I was 24, I think I would feel kind of disillusioned with a system where I knew that even if me and all of my friends voted, we would still lose. Because you do. You all vote for Corbyn and he doesn't win. I know people think he won. He lost, right? Because the old people won. And you voted to remain, and you lost because the old people won. And you voted against Trump, and you lost because the old people won. The old people are going to carry on winning. This is new. 
And we have to think of completely new ways, I think, to channel some of these social forces. We have to be aware that some of them are simply going to go round politics. But, and this is the last thing I'll say, I think the mistake, the thing that connects these two stories, I think the mistake is, if we think that the choice is either this thing called democracy, this package that served us really well in the second half of the 20th century, or Hitler, Mussolini, fascism, the abyss, the thing breaking in two, civil disorder, breakdown. And you see it everywhere in the way people write about contemporary politics. Oh, it's a civil war, it's a coup, it's not. But if we think the choices are democracy or the coup, democracy or the civil war, democracy or fascism, we will cling on to these institutions. I think we could cling on to them for a long time, as they have in Japan. You can just keep going through the motions, at least for another 50 years. And all of these social transformative forces will just go round democracy and we'll find some new way of... Or we could take that package and accept it's probably done. We're in definitely in the latter part of this story. And what's probably going to happen is some of it will become more democratic, some of it will become less democratic, and the whole thing will become more fragmented. So all the institutions that we think of as democracy, they're going to start moving apart. There will be more democracy here, less democracy here. Now, that thing that we are used to will feel like it's ending, and in some ways it will be ending, but it does not follow that the future will be worse. The future will just be different. And that's why it's a real mistake, I think, to think that the future is the 1930s. Like, the past is closed and the future is open. So thinking about how democracy ends, that's the point of my book, is to try and think about a question that we really struggle with because we can't imagine the future. But we should because we're living it. Thanks. Thank you. So, um, so like I said, we st I think we started about 10 past, so we could take 10 or 15 minutes worth of questions. It'd be good to get questions from young people. <laughs> but no, let's just go. Thank you. Um, the, the thing that worries me is something between the democracy not being there and democracy being there. It's democracy looking like it's there. Yeah. And the whole business of increasingly uh, good psychological understanding yeah. of what, how people really tick as opposed to well, how they think they think and uh, who, who has that power. Yeah. It's the very wealthy. And, and you didn't talk about that aspect. Would you like to? No. Sure. Um, so this is where people who've written a book always say, uh, I only had a certain amount of time and I say a lot about <laughs> that. <laughs> There's a whole chapter on this question in the book. You know, there's the whole, let's call it the Cambridge Analytica question. Um, so let me just very briefly say a couple of things. I think we're currently in that phase. So we're, the digital revolution is, we are living through a revolution. It's just not a political one. It's a technological one. It's the most significant revolution since the Industrial Revolution. We're in the very early stages of it. Uh, we've probably been through two phases in relation to politics. So there was the euphoria, the utopianism of the 90s, where like, this technology was going to make our politics way more democratic, more open, give people real choices. It would bring down the Chinese regime. You know, who could survive this openness? And that turned out not to be true, because it was utopian. And now we're in the gloomy phase, which is, oh, we've discovered actually this is a tool of manipulation. It's a tool of control. We don't really know what's going on. So we've gone from the kind of the euphoria to the world of Russian bots, Cambridge Analytica. Turns out the Chinese are absolutely fine with this system because it allows them to surveil their citizens. It's great for authoritarian regimes. We're probably too gloomy at the moment, and we're, we're relatively early in this. Um, 10 years, 15 years' time, it's going to be different again, and we're learning as we go along. The thing that scares me is exactly the point that you made, which is the trouble is it's not just that we don't know, and it's not just that sort of our politicians don't know. I'm not even sure the people who run this technology know what it's being used for. So I have a line in my book, which is the one that keeps getting picked up on, where I say, Mark Zuckerberg is a bigger threat to democracy than Donald Trump. And I think it's true, partly because I think with Trump, what you see is what you get. So with Trump, it's not like, I wonder what that's all about. So, <laughs> uh, he's, fairly, he's a fairly open kind of guy. Uh, Zuckerberg's not a bad person. I think he's well-intentioned. But it's not just that he has a new kind of power. 
I don't think he understands his power. And I think that someone who doesn't understand their power, but who is actually more unaccountable than Trump is, because we can't vote Zuckerberg out. I mean, he runs his... If you read the stuff about Nick Clegg today, I mean, I have to say, I, I could talk... I was like, <laughs> what the hell is that? Um, apparently, Clegg said uh, he would only go and work for Zuckerberg because it's a medieval court if he was close to the king. So... That world, I think Zuckerberg was as surprised as anyone to discover that his nice little toy had led to the election of Donald Trump because the Russians had infiltrated it. So the thing that scares me is that I think we will learn, but I agree. I don't think we're quite in the brainwashing phase yet, and I think there's a tendency to think evil geniuses are manipulating this system, whereas I think it's more that people are experimenting with this system and even the people who run it don't know. I don't think we're going to get democratic accountability of the system, but we do need to be much, much more aware. I'll say one last thing, which is when you say like we can sort of go through the motions and think it's democracy and it's not, I think it's partly because one of the ways that we're trapped is we still think that the next election will sort it. So we're kind of fixed on the thought. Like in America at the moment, everyone is saying, well, the midterms are going to... And then it'll be 2020. We always think the next election is going to kind of clarify things, but we have discovered that elections do not clarify things in this world that we're in now. Actually, election results breed more suspicion. We probably are going to have to think of ways of doing democracy that are not so reliant on elections. And I don't say that because I think we should abolish democracy. I think there are so many other ways that people can participate. Oh, uh, yeah. You mentioned the dividing line between the young and the old. Yeah. And today's young will be the future old. Yeah. Will they make the same mistakes? So this is, this is a really good question, and one of the things that people don't know about. If you think that there are those two dividing lines, young, old, and university-educated, non-university-educated, it's possible that they are actually the same dividing line. Because if only 1% of people, even actually in the 1960s, only 2% of Britons went to university. So you know, if you take a demographic that's over 70 you're not going to find university-educated people among them. Likewise, for the younger group, you've got a completely different educational profile. So the reason this matters is, if the key divider is actually education, as those young people get older, they are not going to become... And I have to be careful about how you put this, but you're not going to become non-educated. And if the thought is that something about an education creates not just a sort of interest group, but a perspective, maybe even a, an identity or a culture, there's every chance that that will persist. The other view is that when people get 45, they start worrying about different kinds of things. Now, traditionally, the things that they worried about was their job, their house, their mortgage. But people under 45 are not going to have a job, a house, or a mortgage. <laughs> so, you know, this is the, the division, and that's the fundamental question. I'll say one other thing. The thing that I think is most unfair, if I was 24 the thing that would bug me most, is not only do young people currently lose to old people, but then the old people say to the young people, oh, and it's your job to care about the environment, it's your job to care about the planet, it's your job to care about future generations because you're young and you're going to live in it. So, like, we're going to outvote you and we're going to protect our pensions and make you pay tuition fees, but you should be worrying about global warming. That is outrageous. Old people should be worrying about global warming. Old people should be worrying about future generations. Old people, because they keep winning. I think it's incumbent on the winners to worry about the future. And the losers, I think, are allowed to worry about the present. So I don't know how this is going to go. It's a really open question. But I would say the thing is, it is new. So we shouldn't think, we shouldn't even think the sort of history of the late 20th century is a good guide to this. I don't think we appreciate the extent to which we are living in completely novel social conditions for better or for worse. But I mean, it's for better or for worse, but it's not for fascism. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of questions that we probably won't have time to. Um, you touched briefly on um, the idea that some things would get more democratic and some things would get less democratic, yeah. and you briefly mentioned the things that you thought would get less so because they were too technocratic or whatever. Yeah. What are the things that you think would get more so? So I think uh, it's a slightly sort of it sounds like a slightly tame answer, but I think local politics will get much more democratic. I think there's no reason why people shouldn't have much, much more 
direct involvement in decisions about where they live and how they live. So, and by local, let's not make it geographic. I mean, just closer to your life. So actually, the technical rules governing the internet, they're really important, but they don't touch on us. But the things that do touch on us, including health and education and many other things, I don't see why we can't, and in this very early phase of this revolution, can't find new ways to allow people much, much more, trust them, you know, to have much, much more control. You know, like with all these things, it'll be messy, and it'll probably, there'll be sort of upsides and downsides to it, and there'll be moments where people say, this is terrible, let's go back to... But, I mean, I think part of it is to do with scale. I'm, you know, there are lots of really interesting experiments going on all around the world in forms of participatory uh, democracy. They tend to be at city level. Um, it's hard to scale them up. I think it's always been hard to scale them up. But it's happening too. So th we, we are living through a kind of sea change in British politics in the sense that the political institutions that are most under strain are political parties. Parties in that package, that 20th century package, parties are the ones that seem to me to be dying quickest. Before parliaments, parties are going to go. Um, social democratic parties across Europe are dead, uh, with one exception, the Labour Party, because it's not a party anymore, it's a movement. Um, now, the trouble is we haven't reformed our institutions. So if you have a movement that gets elected into government with a sovereign parliament where the MPs make the laws and the members get to reject the MPs, that probably will be a recipe for short-term chaos. But long-term, absolutely there are ways we can do it. You know, we have two parties, those same parties from the 1930s. One of them, the Conservative Party, has no members but is in government. And the other one is not in government. It has 600,000 members, but it doesn't actually believe in parliamentary government anymore believes in membership democracy. Now, things are changing fast. Uh, it's going to be messy. I mean, that's the thing. There is no neat solution here. But we've barely begun to experiment. Like the person in the 1930s would say, didn't you think you might change something? Seriously. Or are you so rich, so old, and so educated that you don't even know what's good for you? <laughs> Should we take two more? Uh, yeah, and then, yeah, somewhere there. <laughs> Yes, so the guy here. Thank you. And given your points on the dividing line between old and young, do you think we should implement a maximum voting age? And what are your considerations on that? Yeah. <laughs> so I would, uh, so people talk about this a lot. I, I think, so th there are things we can learn from history. So one thing is it's really, really not a good idea to take votes away from people. You should never do that, right? So do not tell people over the age of 80 that they've lost their vote. That's a catastrophe. You, you, when democracies get stuck, you have stuck. You have to enfranchise more people. Um, you know, there's a long argument about should the voting age be 16. I make it six. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, we need to. Is that would that be so terrible? Because we know, right, from Plato onwards, six-year-olds will not elect six-year-olds to parliament. <laughs> so why not? I would be fine with my nine-year-old son having the vote. I would not be fine with my nine-year-old son being an MP. <laughs> but he won't be. So I think, you know, I think there's a danger. You know, it, it gets dangerous, and this is part of the toxicity of our present politics. People want to take things away. They think it's not working. We need to deprive these people of their rights, these people of their votes. Don't do that. You need to give more people rights, more people votes. But come on. Like, we know that you can enfranchise anyone and parliamentary institutions will continue to function fine. What is, seriously, what is the worst that could happen if six-year-olds had the vote? It's not going to be worse than it is now. <laughs> Last question. Yeah. Um, I found your analogy with Japan quite persuasive, but there's something that Japan has that we don't, which is very strong sort of civic bonds yeah. and uh, like tight-knit yeah. society. So given that uh, the institutions aren't changing, it's very difficult to change those institutions. And in Japan, they've just sort of accepted that yeah. decline yeah. Uh, with equanimity. I don't think that's going to happen here. Yeah. Uh, you say that people are going to go around democracy, but... I feel like there's just not that much room to go around democracy anymore. Like, the government's much bigger than it's ever been. There's no, like, wild west to explore yeah. where you can, like, just ignore the laws. So where is that energy going to be funneled? So that is a really excellent question, and I can't... Um, and you're completely right. So that is the problem with the Japan analogy. The problem is the other social-cultural side of it, which is to do with sort of heritage and tradition and other things. And 
like I said, you know, they've had, that, like you described, they've had 30 years where it's kind of carried on because there are actually social bonds that can withstand quite a lot of this kind of pressure. And it's not clear we have those, particularly as we become more divided. And so Japan has not elected Trump, some people like that, not quite, not yet. And actually, Japanese politics is probably considerably less volatile than our politics because, like you say, at the moment, we're not going round, we're going through. So I'm, you know, by saying the future is open, the, the point of that analogy was not to say we're going to be Japan. It's just we're more Japan than we are Weimar Germany. And that we, there are these patterns that we can see, particularly that demographic question about immigration, age, and technology. But our politics is different, our society is different, and our expectations are different. And it could be much more volatile here. It already is much more volatile here. I don't know. The future is open. Uh, the going round bit, I mean, I think you know, for all of these things, we're going to see simultaneously kind of opposite effects happening at the same time. Some of it's going to go round and some of it's going to go through. We're kind of seeing that at the moment. Our politics is incredibly volatile, incredibly passionate, incredibly consuming, time-consuming, and yet so much of our lives are now being lived particularly online in a world where we don't actually think that we're engaging with politics at all. Japan is one future, but there are lots of others out there. You know, I mentioned China. I mean, China is another possible future. I don't think people in the West want to be China. I don't think Western democracy is going to collapse into Chinese state capitalism because we're going to vote for it. But the Chinese system, where there is serious cooperation between the state and the big technology companies to essentially run that society. It's terrifying, and it's also, for many people, quite appealing. So I'll tell you one other story, which is um, my, my oldest son, who's 19, has just spent a year in China, and he came back, and I said, what's it like? Like, what's the politics like? And he, he said people are, on the whole, relatively content because they're definitely on an upward trajectory. But he said for his experience, having come from Brexit Britain, what was so nice was to spend nine months in a country where you don't have to think about politics at all. <laughs> now, you know, that, that's both uh, chilling and a sort of interesting <laughs> thought. Okay, um, I've been told to tell you, <laughs> so it sounds like someone else should say this, but I'll say it, which is you can buy my book upstairs. LAUGHTER